you got your Bible with you, I invite you to join me at Luke chapter 4. Luke 4, 16. Luke 4.16, if you're just joining us, jumping into what we're doing here, um, I want to say to you, welcome. And we are in a season where we're paying special attention to the idea of the kingdom of God. So if you're asking the question, what are they talking about here? What's the big idea today? Today and for a while now, for the past few weeks and ongoing, the big idea is what is the kingdom of God like? The kingdom of God is one of those ideas that can be really difficult to get a handle on. What exactly does it mean? Here's the, here's the framework, here's the, the guiding thought that we have that we're going to carry all the way through, is trying to understand the, the already but not yet nature of the kingdom of God. How the kingdom of God is something that was present on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. How the kingdom of God is something that is present on earth in the Christian. And how the kingdom of God will be present on earth in all of its fullness when Jesus Christ returns. Do you see, it's, it's both already and not yet. And so that's what the question that we're asking as we go through the Gospel of Luke is what is this kingdom of God like? Okay, so let's bring everyone up to speed. We've seen Jesus born. We've seen him baptized. We've seen him tempted. That's what we talked about last Sunday. And according to Luke 4.15, so if you've got your Bible open in front of you, according to Luke 4.15, after his temptation, Jesus is glorified by all. That's Luke 4.15. Jesus um, went home being glorified by all. That's verse 15. By verse 30... The people that know him best are trying to murder him. So he goes from being glorified by all in verse 15 to attempted murder by the time we get to verse 30. What happens in between? What in the world happens? And what does it teach us about the kingdom of God? That's the question that's in front of us today and next Sunday. So we're only going to take half the account today. There's, there's too much here to try to do the whole thing in one Sunday. So for two weeks, we're going to ask the question, what in the world happens to go from being glorified by all to having attempted murder by the people that know you best from your hometown? And what does it teach us about the kingdom of God? Okay, that's where we're headed. So today, we're going to start in verse 16. We're only going to read through verse 22, and then we'll cover the rest of it next Sunday. Okay? All right. Let's stand in honor of God and his word. This is Luke 4, beginning in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. 
The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Our Heavenly Father, we want to give our minds to you during this time. Give more than our mind, want to give our heart. We enter this time mindful that uh, those we love and are connected to this body um, are sick, and we pray for the sick. We pray for the vulnerable, for the lonely. We pray for the imprisoned and the families of those who are in prison. We pray for the powerful as they have important decisions to make that affect our lives. Rulers and governors, we pray for them. We pray that you will guide them into wisdom and righteousness. We pray for ourselves because we, we love you, but we're very aware of um, our tendency to wander with our feet, with our minds, with our thoughts. We, we so much want to live lives that are pleasing to Jesus, and we rejoice in his grace that he's been our perfection. But we pray for a closer following, not just because we have to, but because we know that will be joy for us. The path to joy and fulfillment will be a closer walk with Jesus. So that's what we ask for, and we ask that you'd take this time that we're sharing together the, the public proclamation of your word uh, to serve that purpose and give us that joy. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Let's take this as our approach today to try to get in and figure out this passage. And I told you by the end of the passage, they want to kill him. And it goes downhill really fast. And I, I have just been looking forward so long to getting into this passage with you because the dynamics, the relational dynamics going on here are fascinating. And there's so much to learn about human nature and about the Lord Jesus. And so we've got a lot of work to do. Some of it's going to be pretty hard, um, just hard in terms of figuring out contextually what's going on. We've got a lot of work to do to get back into their mindset, what they would have been thinking. So let's start this way. This, this will be our outline for today. We're going to just observe what Jesus did very simply. Then we're going to think together about what those people would have understood as they were listening to him. Just like you have come to a service today, worship service. They came on a particular day. We're going to ask, okay, what would they have understood as they were listening to him? 
And then finally, we're going to observe their response, their initial response, and find some practical application about the kingdom of God. Okay, but let's just start by observing what Jesus did. And we, very simply, we could say that Jesus presents them with claims. That's really, that's really what he does when he stands up to read the scripture, sits down, makes the pronouncement that today in your hearing, this has all been fulfilled. What he's really doing is setting claims before them. Claims about himself and claims about the time that they're living in. And we're going to talk about each of those two things. But he's making certain claims about himself and he's making claims about the time they're living in. He claims to know with certainty that today is the fulfillment of these things. He says it's today. And we'll talk in a moment about those specific claims that he makes, okay? Right now, we're just noticing that we all, all of us in this room, all of the people of the world, we all occupy a similar position to these people in the synagogue at Nazareth. In this sense, that the claims of Jesus of Nazareth hang over all of us. He's made huge claims about who he is, and every person sits under those claims. We're all confronted with the claims that Jesus has made about himself, about his role in history. And and here's the thing, as massive as those claims are that he's made, the the truly astounding thing is, is this claim that he makes upon you. His claim is that It's how you respond to his claims that is the one thing that determines the whole trajectory of your life. So it's not just that he's made these huge claims about himself. It's that he's also said, what you decide about me, how you respond to my claims, is the one thing that is completely determinative about your life, whether your life is one marked by eternal joy or eternal pain. Not the good works that you do, not how much money you've given to charitable causes, not your education level. None of those things is determinative. That's his claim upon you. How you respond to me is the one thing that's determinative in your life. That's a huge claim, isn't it? And I think a claim like that is worthy of study. It's worthy of maybe more contemplation than you've given it to this point in your life. If you're still viewing Jesus from a distance. So these massive claims of Jesus are set before us all. They're going to come to us as we go through the gospel. We're observing that this was true for this gathering of people on this day in Nazareth. Jesus reads the scripture, but it's not an ordinary reading of scripture. He finishes it and then claims to be its fulfillment. He presents them with claims. That's what happens first. Now, we've got to take some time to ask this question. 
what would they have understood him to be saying? Because we know a lot more than they did on that day. We've, we've read all the gospels. We know what happens. We know the end of the story. They didn't have all that knowledge. That was all in the future for them. So if we're going to understand how they respond to him and try to make sense of their response, we have to ask the question, what would they have understood him to be saying? What would they have thought that he was claiming? And obviously we can't say with certainty what was going through everyone's mind, but we can make a pretty good guess based on what we know about contemporary teaching in Judaism. We can make a pretty good guess as to what they would have thought and what they would have understood. At a minimum, they very likely understood Jesus to be claiming two things. Something about himself and something about the time they were living in. Regarding himself, they very likely understood him to be claiming this by reading Isaiah 61, that passage, to be making this claim. I am the promised prophet. And I am the Messiah of Israel. Regarding himself, standing up and reading that passage and sitting down and announcing its fulfillment on that day, regarding himself, they would have likely heard him saying, I am the promised prophet you've been expecting, and I am the Messiah of Israel. First of all, regarding his role as the promised prophet, he is the promised prophet in the sense that he is the final announcer of the year of the Lord's favor in the time of Israel's restoration and joy. That's the sense that he was the promised prophet. He's the final announcer of the year of the Lord's favor. Remember, that's verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what he's doing. And he's announcing the time of Israel's restoration and joy. Isaiah, who wrote the text that Jesus read, Isaiah announced it in the first person, didn't he? Isaiah wrote those words in the first person that begin chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He wrote that in the first person, but clearly the time had not yet come. When Isaiah wrote that passage, Israel was on the brink of exile. Like they were going to be decimated and headed into exile. So, yeah, he wrote those things in the first person, but there was no fulfillment of those things. Like it was the opposite, not the year of the Lord's favor. It was the year of the Lord's chastisement and punishment. They were going to be uprooted and taken away. So what did Isaiah do? He pointed forward to someone who someone else who would be able to come and say those things in the first person, in fulfillment. Isaiah didn't lie. It was also true of him. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. He had been anointed as the prophet, just not the final one 
to bear this message. Isaiah pointed forward to a day of future restoration and said, it's coming. And Amos said, it's coming. And Zephaniah said, it's coming. And Zechariah said, it's coming. And Malachi said, it's coming. And Jesus comes and says, it's here. It is here. Do you see in verses 18 and 19 all the references to proclaiming? Three times in that section, Jesus read, proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. That's a prophetic function. I'm here to announce. I'm here to proclaim. He certainly has come in the role of prophet to announce to people the word of God and the appropriate response. And so it's very likely that the people would have made that prophetic connection This Jesus is the promised prophet who is to come and tell us that everything is finally fulfilled. And Deuteronomy 18 is another key text for getting at that idea that the Lord would raise up a prophet like Moses for his people. So they they certainly would have seen him in that that role as the, the promised prophet, but it's likely that they would have understood Jesus to be saying even more than that making an even greater claim than that. Making the claim to be the Messiah of Israel. Notice the other work of this person who's described in verses 18 and 19. It's not just a proclaiming function. There's other things that are happening there too. Notice that his role involves freeing captives. First part of verse 18 Notice that it involves giving recovery of sight to the blind. Also verse 18. Notice that the role involves setting at liberty those who are oppressed. End of verse 18. All those things, freeing captives, giving sight to the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed, those are all messianic functions. That's what people expected of the Messiah. The Messiah would be a deliverer, a liberator. Especially important in this regard is Isaiah 42. So Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, okay? That's not the only place that Isaiah, the prophet, writes about the coming Messiah. Also really important is chapter 42. Listen to how close the language is from Isaiah 42. I have put my spirit upon him. There it is again, the same idea of the spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. See how close that language is to the language we find in Isaiah 61. This is all referring to the office of the Messiah. And besides all that, there's this, which most of you probably already know. Messiah means the anointed one. That's what the word means. 
And Jesus stands up and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. I think the question that we're all interested in here in the end is, okay, just how high of a claim is he making here? That, that, I think that's really the bottom line for us as we're trying to get a handle on the passage. How high of a claim did they understand him to be making when he read this passage and sat down and said, it's fulfilled today? Did they think he was claiming to be God? No. Did they think he was claiming to be the promised prophet announcing the restoration of Israel in the time of God's favor? Yes. Did they think he was claiming to be the Messiah, the Savior of Israel? I would say probably. Probably. And we're just going to leave it there. We're going to be comfortable not knowing for sure because Luke doesn't tell us for sure. We don't know it all, but we know enough. We know that his claims were huge. And we know the nature of them. And whatever they understood about his personal claims, they definitely understood his second claim. I think this is the one they were really excited about. His claim about the time that they were living in. So first claim, I am the promised prophet and I am the Messiah of Israel. Second claim, the era that they've been waiting for is here. I'm just guessing, this is just my personal guess, that this is where most of the people's focus would have been. Not so much on the personal claims that he was making, but on his claim that the time of Israel's restoration and prosperity is here. Because that's what 95% of Isaiah 61 is about. Jesus read the first two verses. That's just the very beginning. But 95% of that chapter is about what the time of Israel's restoration and prosperity is going to be like. The new era of God's favor that will come to Israel. And therefore all the earth at the time when God turns and shows favor to his people. Why would they have been excited about that? Well, remember what's going on in their lives. Like, life is not real good. I mean, they're, you know, living under the the whims of the Roman Empire. They feel like captives in their own land. They're living under oppression. They're longing for some good national news. Like, good stuff for our people, our prosperity. That's what is the really good news that day for them. When they hear him saying, liberty to the captives, that's awesome because we're captive and we need liberty and freedom for the oppressed. Yes, that's us. Wonderful. Fantastic. God had promised that that day would come. Okay, now I want to read for you from Isaiah 61. I'm, just, I'm going to give you bullet points about the description of what that era would be like. If you want to, if you want to flip there, feel free. That, that wouldn't be a bad idea. But 
this new social paradigm that they're going to get to live in, that the Messiah is going to bring in, this is what life was going to be like for them on this planet. I want you to listen. All these descriptions are right out of Isaiah 61. What is life going to be like on this planet when God restores his people? This is what it's going to be like. Freedom for the oppressed. Verse 1. Comfort for those who are sad and burdened. Verse 2. Joy instead of pain. Verse 3. Good instead of evil. Verse 3 and 10 and 11. Security instead of vulnerability. Verse 4. Honor instead of shame. Verse 7. Justice instead of robbery and wrongdoing. Verse 8. The wicked will experience judgment instead of prosperity. Verse 8. That is a snapshot of what life will be like. The picture is that Israel is going to be restored. God's going to regather his people, bring them back together. They're going to be restored and living in prosperity, living in this kind of a world, and all of the families of the earth will benefit from it. That's the picture. They're going to benefit from it and participate in that prosperity of Israel. That's the day that they were longing to see that God had promised. Now, listen, this is where we want to draw a line straight over to practical application. Who would not sign up for that? Is that not a description of the world that everyone, everyone of every political stripe in every worldview wants to see that is the common hope of humanity freedom comfort joy good security honor justice that is the kingdom of God and that's what everyone wants no matter what your belief system is or no matter what your politics are everyone wants to see that happen Justice, freedom, the righting of wrongs, absence of evil, absence of oppression, presence of joy, humanity coexisting in peace, shalom, God's wholeness over all the planet. They were waiting for that day in Nazareth. We are waiting for that day. Everyone would sign up for that day. Jesus is announcing that it's here. So what is the problem? If everyone wants that, what is the problem? As we begin to look at the response to Jesus, we will see the problem. But just recapping, Jesus has made claims. We have an idea of what the original listeners would have thought those claims to be. Something about himself, something about the time that they're living in, Now, look at the response. 
the initial response. Several details about that response are given. Starting in verse 22. And I think the most honest thing we can say about the response is that it appears to be mixed. On the one hand, they marvel at something. According to verse 22, they spoke well of him. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. I think it's safe to say that they loved his message. They love the gracious words. They're all for it. They're all for the coming of this era of God's favor so that they can live in this kind of a world. But on the other hand, they appear to be wrestling with something. We have an indication of that in uh, verse 22. They ask the question, "Is, is this not Joseph's son? Now, there's nothing inherently negative about asking that question. Really, that's just kind of a neutral question. But in my view, it does seem to imply a kind of struggle to make it all make sense. Like, how can, how can this man be the, the long-awaited person in whom all of our national hopes are wrapped up? Like, really? I mean, he made a... He grew up next door and he made a chair for my cousin. He's the guy. We can kind of understand that, right? That natural skepticism. That's not all here in Luke's text. If we go to Mark, Mark, Mark's account really bolsters that argument. Mark, Mark gives us a little more color as to what they were saying. And it was not flattering. There's a, there's a very big wrestling going on here with how could, how could he be the one? We have this very mixed reaction taking place of loving the message and being very, very unsure about the messenger. So look, let's summarize and draw a parallel to the present day. Everyone is all for the society described in Isaiah 61. The Nazarenes wanted it. We all want it. Could go out here, walk out on Valley View Drive after the service and take an informal poll for anyone that happens to be walking their dog on a day like today and list all the things that we listed off about justice and good and absence of evil and lack of oppression. Yeah, everybody would sign up for that. It's not a question of do we want that. The question for them and for us is do we want him? Can we accept him? Because according to the passage that he read and applied to himself, he is the bringer of this age. He is the one who announces it and has been especially anointed to bring it in and make it happen. He's the one who can deliver. He is the freer of the captives. It's all on his shoulders. In other words, we cannot have the kingdom without the king. 
And we've tried. And when I say we've tried, I mean all of humanity. We have tried to have the kingdom without the king. Let us count the ways. We've tried economic policies to create the kingdom of God. We've tried social policies. We've tried religious policies, forced conversion. Maybe if we can just force everyone to convert to Christianity, then we can bring in the kingdom of God. We've tried relocation. Maybe if we just pick up and move as a society over to this other continent, we can start it over there and get away from all those bad people. We've tried relocation. We've tried separation. That's what apartheid was. If we can just separate people, they can have their own little kingdom. We'll have our own little perfect kingdom. We've tried legislation, making bad behavior illegal. We've tried genocide, getting rid of the people we think are holding us back from the kind of society that we want to have. See, we've tried everything. And everything has failed to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Because whatever we do and wherever we go, we always take ourselves with us. And that means sin. We always take our sin with us on the inside. We never get away from our proud, self-seeking, fearful selves. And if the kingdom of God is ever going to come to earth, someone has to deal with sin. All of our attempts to create the world that we want to live in will eventually fail because as long as human sin is with us, we will always oppress each other and wrong each other and rob each other and exploit each other and kill and abuse and neglect each other. Listen, the closest we've ever come to having the kingdom of God on earth was Eden. There were only two people. I mean, what could go wrong? But even when there were only two people, there was rebellion and there was deception and there was shame. And then there were only four people. There were only four people and they shared a common worldview centered on God and they were family. Four people. And one of them was murdered because of sin. See, it's never going to work. Now, can we make progress toward a better and more just society? Yes, we can. Should we try to make progress toward a better and more just society? Yes, we should. Absolutely. But here's the thing. God is too good and his plan for humanity is too great for him to settle for a society around the globe with just a little bit of oppression. For him to settle for a society where the vast majority of the people are prospering and are secure. He's not settling for that. God is creating a new earth with no oppression 
no vulnerability, no evil at all, no sin, zero. And that is the perfect world that we can never create in spite of our best efforts because of sin. If the kingdom of God is going to come to earth, someone has to deal with our sinful hearts. And the only person who can stood up one day in his hometown and said, I'm here. Only Jesus can deal with human sin. See, that's who we've needed all along. Someone that can deal with sin. And he has by taking the sin of the world on his shoulders and making atonement for sin. Jesus dealt with sin and therefore he holds the keys to the beautiful, desirable and perfect kingdom of God. See, we don't need a philosopher and we don't need an economist and we don't need a politician. We need a sacrifice. And that's who Jesus is. And we're going to stop right here. The drama that plays out in Nazareth is not over, but we're just going to sit here in the tension that they were feeling and, and end right here because this is the tension that a lot of people today sit in, loving the message. Really, really skeptical about the messenger. Loving the message of justice and goodness and freedom for all, but wrestling with the exclusive and high claims of this carpenter for Nazareth to be the only means of entering this kingdom? Really? Maybe you have not outright rejected him. You just don't see how he could be, how he could be the only way to God and the world that we all want. And if that's you, if that's your thought, if you sit today loving the message of peace and justice and prosperity, but very skeptical about Jesus of Nazareth, I just want to respectfully say two things to you, and this is, this is the very end. First thing I want to say is that the message only gets harder. The message only gets harder to accept, because if you don't like the claims that Jesus made about himself today, you're really not going to like what he claims about you that we're going to look at next Sunday. It's even harder than you think to accept his claims. Second thing I want to say is I just want to invite you to keep investigating, to keep looking at this Jesus, and particularly ask yourself the question, does his message not accord with the reality that I see around me? That it really is true that in order to have the kingdom of God that we all want to have, someone really does have to deal with sin because nothing has ever worked. Does that not accord with what you see? Isn't it true that someone has to do something about our sinful hearts? I just invite you to keep asking that question. Look forward to seeing you next week. We'll look into these things again, okay? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the, the bread and the cup, um, our sustenance for today. We thank you that as we look at the world around us, um, that we participate in, as broken as it is, 
we thank you that there is a future day coming where you will restore all things and there will be no sin and no evil. We place our hope in that future day and in your promise that it will come to pass. We believe it. We believe it. We feel the brokenness of the world. We remember your presence with us. We leave the room with hope, much rejoicing, glad singing in Jesus' name. Amen.